This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queros, Cami here. Well, this week's episode is with writer Melinda Lowe, whose book, Last Night at the Telegraph Club, is amazing. Like, I love it. But also, I have been reading Melinda for 20 years. Like, seriously, 20 years. We talk about that on the show. And also, every time I mention this, I get new Patreon patrons. So you can go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros. Now, some of your fellow queeros, they've been carrying the load for a while, and they need to, like, reduce their patronage or need to stop patronizing for a while because everybody's got a fixed income and a fixed amount of money. Well, not not like Jeff Bezos, um, but us, we do. So, hey, if you're somebody who hasn't supported the show, this could be your moment to step up and take the, share the load for a little while. I don't know, but, but anyway, go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros to support the show. And please enjoy this chat with Melinda Lowe. Hello. Hi. Oh my god, I gotta <laughs> stretch my arms. Um I'm the biggest fan. I'm such a huge oh. fan of yours. Uh for such a long time. Would you, I really? Have, well, yeah. the feeling is mutual, so I feel very excited to be talking with you. Two thumbs up. Ah, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm Melinda Lowe. I am an author. Um, I have written six uh, young adult novels, most recently, Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which uh, won the National Book Award in Young People's Literature um, last year, which I am still stunned by. <laughs> <laughs> so that's who oh, I am. Oh, now, 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 why do you feel stunned? I think it's just because I've been doing this for a long time now. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's, this is my, like, this is my sixth published novel, and I've been a writer, like a working writer since the early 2000s. So it's been like 20 years of this stuff. Well, let's talk about that too. <laughs> this is how I am first familiar with you. Um, when you were a writer in the early 2000s, can you talk a little bit about the kind of writing that you did at that time? Yeah, I was an entertainment reporter focusing yes, on yes, lesbian were. entertainment because so um, I worked for After Ellen, which uh, back then it, it, my friend started it in her like home office. Sarah Warren? Uh, Sarah Warren. <laughs> My friend Sarah Warren started it in her home office, and I had just dropped out of grad school to be a freelance writer. So Sarah called me and was like, you just dropped out of grad school to be a freelance writer. Do you want to write an article for my website that basically no one read at the time, right? It was like brand new. So well, I... Not nobody. <laughs> Somewhere out there, was... Cameron Esposito was reading. Okay. Yes. <laughs> in 2002 or 2003, yes. the yes. dawn of the internet. Yes. Um, yeah, so I wrote an article about Ellen DeGeneres because uh, it was for After Ellen. And back then, it was like, the reason we called it After Ellen is because after Ellen came out, like, TV and entertainment really changed for lesbians and bisexual women. So that's what I did. I, I never expected to be an entertainment reporter writing about lesbians. Like, this is not like I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to do that. Right. <laughs> 
Right. And I also <laughs> just want to say a couple other things here. I am not totally up on like the current situation, but that site eventually had a big sad because yes, it got it bought did. by a large media company. And for a while, um, my friend Trish Bendix was editing it. And then mm-hmm. and then it got bought by then it was like bought. I think that was like during the MTV era. Yeah, M- and, MTV bought it in 2006. And yes. that's when I became managing editor and I was part of hiring Trish. Oh, which my God. Was great. Yeah. <laughs> and um so amazing. It, Who I knew in Chicago was, at the time. Yes. Yes. She was a music uh, re- reporter at mm-hmm. the time. Yes. So we had a really good run with After Ellen in the early years. MTV put um, gave us some support, you know, and some legitimacy because no one believes that a lesbian website is real. Right. But if MTV buys you, then you're like, OK. So then yes. we were able to speak to more celebrities, basically, yes. is what happened. Yeah. Um, but then MTV eventually, it didn't work out forever. I mean, the site was sold a couple of times. I left in 2008 and then the site went on, but it was sold a couple of times. And now it's run by people who do not, do not share sh- the vision. Do not share my Sarah Warren and I did. Yeah, yes. yeah. And yeah. it's not the same anymore. Like, I, I directly do not recommend visiting After Ellen anymore. Yes. Yeah, I, it eventually... Yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. Please put no, I I'm saying. I was just going to say it's it's really sad because it was a really kind of groundbreaking site in its day. And I think that it has really become tarnished by what it has become, frankly. Yeah. You know, there there. Eventually, it got into the hands of some folks that have some strong anti-trans sentiment. And that just sucks. You know, for me, I like I just echo. I mean, I can't imagine how much more you might feel this way or whatever. But just as a reader. You know, I when you when the site was started, I mean, this is why I know Sarah's name. Like when the site was started, <laughs> I was um, I was at a college where I couldn't come out. Um, and also I couldn't have cable, you know, because I was like lived on campus and you couldn't have a cable package. Um, so you got like the TV shows that the the college purchased, you know, um, which were mm-hmm. like uh, whatever it was like ESPN and then like. ABC or whatever it was. Um, and Netflix started when I was, uh, I think a junior. So at that point you could like mail away for videos, which felt like a Uh, little bit more accessible because I didn't have to go in anywhere when I was trying to, you know, maintain, not, I was closeted. (laughs) So like, it's not like I was going to walk in somewhere and like rent something. So could like, my girlfriend and I would order these videos you know off of like her netflix account i i always say like at the time also there were like four lesbian movies i'm sure if we could yes. find those dvds and like fingerprint them we could create <laughs> a a spreadsheet that the government should not have access to because i think like every <laughs> lesbian was just renting and then returning the same four videos right. um but you know I say all this to say, like when I found After Ellen, it it really made such a huge difference to me because I could I wasn't even able to watch the things that you all re- were reporting on. So really, like my framing for like lesbian culture and queer culture was like your descriptions. <laughs> like it's like you know, and then like maybe like a still, 
you know, like a, a still. It was what, so hard to get yeah. those stills back then. And it, it, I mean, obviously you can Google anything now, but it's so interesting to think back to those times. And like we had small photos uploaded, yeah. like they, you know, they were tiny. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I just want to thank you. You know, it made such a huge difference in my life oh. being able to read that reporting and like feel like a normal person or like there was something going on that I didn't yet know about from firsthand experience, but like that might be waiting for me. And, you know, I mean, it was really life-saving stuff. And that is why it's so sad that like, that's not really a site that like I can talk about anymore as a place I, it's not a place I visit. I don't go there. I don't read what they have to say. Um, But I, I did read what you wrote. I wrote what Sarah wrote and it, it made a huge difference in my life. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's really amazing to connect with people who read it back in the day. You know, it was a different time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was like, what was that like for you? Did you have a larger queer community? What, what was your life like at the time that you were writing that stuff? Well, I had just dropped out of grad school. Like, What I were you said, in grad school for? So, um, I was going to get a PhD in cultural anthropology. Okay, well, there, it's, that's, yeah. uh, that actually I, well, is what you kind of did. So there I, you go. It really is because my master's research was actually on the X-Files. Oh my and God, yeah. I loved the X-Files. I, I totally turned my X-File fanishness into a research project funded by the Mellon Foundation. It's ridiculous. It's, it was the peak of my graduate school experience, and there was nowhere to go but down and out of there. So <laughs> I, I left, and I was living in San Francisco um, with no money because I was a grad school dropout trying to be a queer entertainment freelance writer. Like, there's no money in this. But I had a really—I almost instantly found a really wonderful network of friends in San Francisco, I had like one connection to a high school friend whom I'm not in touch with anymore, but she was in San Francisco then. And I met her friends. I met her girlfriend and I'm still really good friends with her girlfriend. I mean, they broke up. <laughs> it's like I'm not friends with my high school friend anymore, but I'm still friends with her ex. So well, it's classic tale. Um, yes. Yes. So I was living in San Francisco when I was doing all this after all and stuff. So I was very much all gay all the time, you know, <laughs> in the early 2000s. <laughs> Amazing. And and wh- yeah, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Colorado. Oh, where in Colorado? What city? Uh, right outside of Boulder. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are you familiar with the area? Sure. I mean, um, that's like kind of the opposite of growing up in Chicago. <laughs> Yes, in terms of like close. topography and hobbies and things that people might be interested <laughs> in. Um, yeah, that I didn't I didn't know that about you. What was that experience like? Did you how was it growing up there? I did not love it. I admit I didn't love it. I was uh, one of only like two or three Asian Americans in my school. Um, I was also one of two or three queer kids in my in my class. We all were friends with each other and we were not out. None of us knew anything about this until after high school. Um, it was it was kind of a an, an alienating experience growing up there, and I I really left as soon as I could. Like when I I went to college at Wellesley um, in Massachusetts, and um, that's when I uh, almost immediately <laughs> began to come out. I mean, well, it wasn't yeah. a women's college. It was it was very you know 
everybody was coming out. I remember one weekend, all of my <laughs> college friends came out at the same time. It was it was quite a weekend. Wow, congrats on your college experience. That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, but then I then I wasn't ready to be out. So then I kind of was tried to be straight for the rest of my college experience. That was really stupid. I mean, I gave up like four years of being gay oh, at Wellesley. I'm so sorry. Attempt. It was really a bad decision <laughs> on my part. Yeah. Well, you know, this is all... Okay, so I love your book. Um, Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which you won the National Book Award for. I loved, I loved it. It's such a good book. And um, I will also say, like, I guess... Because it's young adult, like you said. Yeah, it's, young, it's been published it's, as it's young, young adult. adult. Yeah. In I, the UK, it's published as adult. So yeah, I it would has say, a bit of a crossover. Yeah, I would say it feels very crossover-y to me anyway. Like, I think there's um, a real maturity for your characters. And then also, like, yeah, I mean, even just their age. I don't know. I was I was realist. I was listening to the Price of Salt because it was the holidays recently, and that oh, is one yeah. way to celebrate the holidays uh, <laughs> is to re-listen to the Price of Salt. And um, you know the uh, Therese is like nineteen in that book, mm-hmm. so you know, and, and I don't think that's you know I think that's a an adult book. So anyway, it, I will just say yeah, not that there's anything wrong with young adult, but it does feel like a very adult young adult book. Like I felt like last night at the Telegraph Club, I was like, I felt very seen and. Um, related to the characters a lot, but it is interesting, um, based on what you just said, like where you chose to set the book, like the, the Mm -hmm. environment and then the world that the characters live in. So maybe you could talk about that for a second. Sure. So it started out as a short story actually that I wrote for an anthology of short fiction, queer YA historical short fiction. (laughs) It's a very specific category. The anthology was called All Out. And I wrote the story. I was inspired by two books that I'd been reading at the time, two nonfiction books, one called Rise of the Rocket Girls, which was about the women computers who worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab in the 1940s and 50s. And I was also reading a history book called Wide Open Town, which was about uh, the history of queer San Francisco. So these books have nothing to do with each other, but I was reading them kind of around the same time and they kind of mixed in my head. And I thought about, I came up with this character of Lily, who is this um, uh, 17-year-old high school student who is obsessed with rocket science (laughs) Um, because her aunt is a rocket scientist. She's a computer who works at JPL, and she wants to be like her aunt, but also she's starting to think she might be a lesbian. Um, And in Wide Open Town, there's, it's an extensive history of San Francisco's queer community, and there are several chapters on the bar scene in San Francisco. And you may not be aware of this. Well, maybe you are because you read the book, but (laughs) in the 40s and 50s, there were a ton of lesbian bars in San Francisco, like dozens (laughs) within a small area around North Beach, which is right next to Chinatown. So if you're familiar with the geography of San Francisco, it's like- I am. Yes. When I was just there, I was um, like, I just was there. I can't remember when this was. It must've been the fall because it was like a brief period of time where we thought for a moment that right. might there was be wise like one to do like stand-up this, yeah. comedy. Like, I don't know why we <laughs> thought that, but but um, anyway, so I performed at Cobbs, which is very close, which is in North Beach. So I was walking through North Beach and, and Chinatown and, and had that experience in the fall. 
And then I came home. I mean, just in case you're wondering how much I was like, I can't believe I'm reading this book. So I like had that experience. <laughs> I was walking around in those places. I came home and um, I actually live in a community in Pasadena that was originally par- partially built to house folks who worked at JPL. So oh my God, I, amazing. Yeah, like it's a couple stops down the freeway from me. But um, I think actually more people live here than anywhere else. Um, per, or at least at, at one point, more people lived here that worked there than anywhere else. Mm. So um, I am so fascinated by JPL. I had like a, <laughs> a an awesome uh, query guest who helped land the rover. And all I can't... I. You know, we all want COVID to be over for a million reasons, but one reason is because I was promised a special behind the scenes tour as soon as they are giving people tours again. I'm so, so jealous. I want to go I'm, on that tour. Come, you'll come down. <laughs> we'll go together. Okay. okay. This is sometime awesome. in the future. We that will happen. Excellent. Um, Excellent. But anyway, I feel like I was I was listening to your book and I was like, wait, what's the next detail here? Like every detail I just felt like I had like um some some understanding of or whatever but but keep going keep going talking about the bar scene north oh, beach china yeah this is what you were talking about yeah so because i'm familiar with san francisco i lived there for like 15 years and i was just i couldn't help but think like if this chinese american girl lily lived in chinatown she must have seen some lesbians going to some lesbian bars because it's literally across the street. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like there had to be some kind of crossover. So that's what the story was about. Um, Lily discovering that lesbians exist. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> which is a, which is a moment in the life of every young uh, queer person. Right. So I uh, thought it was just a short story. Uh, but then when I was talking about it with my agent, he said, you know, this could be a novel. Um, and I realized he was right because there was so much more about Lily that I wanted to say. You know, she had much more of a story than was just in this short story. So then I decided to expand it into a novel, um, which took a long time uh, because I had to do so much research into the 1950s. Like, I didn't really know that much about the 1950s. I could write the short story, um, which was, but that was about it. So I had to really dig in and learn all about that time. <laughs> yeah. And you don't fuck around because there's an amazing <laughs> postscript in the book about all the work that you did. And um, my wife, Katie, and I both read it. And that not only we like we certainly talked about the book, but we also we, we talked a lot about like this. The, the author's note. Yeah. Ama- yeah. That's what it, the author's note is like. So incredible. The the detail. in there. <laughs> Thank um, you. I think so it was job. basically my my graduate degree finally coming in useful. <laughs> I finally wrote something that was, you know, influenced by that, <laughs> that training. Totally. So, yeah. So for you, you know, just, I mean, that's why I think this was like an interesting jumping off point. You talking about how you were raised, you know, outside of Boulder and and being one of three Asian American people that you knew. And then and then this story that's set in Chinatown, a, a woman who's really growing up in a Chinese community. You know, I'm I'm curious about, you know, is there any part of it, any part of that that's like some personal exploration around like what if, you know, is is that 
Is that part of it for you there? It is, but probably not in the ways that people expect, um, because Lily's personal story is quite different from mine. But the ways in which it was inspired by my my life, my family's life in particular, was around the immigration narrative. So in the book, Lily's father is um, he is from China. He comes to the U.S. in the 1930s to go to medical school. And Lily's mother was born in America. She's a second generation Chinese American. Um, when they get married, um, that does not mean Lily's father can get U.S. citizenship because there was the Chinese Exclusion Act at the time. And also, so you couldn't become an American citizen as a Chinese immigrant in that way through marriage. Which I don't think um, gets a lot of play in terms of uh, <laughs> American history. Like it's no, I have to be honest, I I didn't really know that. Um, until reading the book, which I think is like mm -hmm. shameful and humiliating, but also like, yeah, it's not it's not widely taught. Very keeping in keeping with American culture, like you know, um, yeah. But yeah, keep keep going. Yeah. So Lily's father becomes an American citizen by joining the military once World War II starts. So my family was kind of uh, they kind of had a similar inflection point. Uh, my grandfather came to the U.S. to study, to get his Ph.D. in psychology in the 1930s. He met my grandmother, who was a white woman um, at the time. Well, she always was a white woman. She was also at the university at the time. And um, they went to Shanghai to get married because it was illegal for them to get married in the U.S. Um, because of those anti-miscegenation laws that were on the books for quite a while. Um, but he could not obtain U.S. citizenship by marrying her. There was literally a law that said if a white woman marries an Asian woman, um, he cannot gain citizenship. So this was <laughs> the way it was. So he couldn't gain citizenship. So after uh, World War II, they went back to China. Like they decided to go back to China instead of staying in the U.S. because it was basically impossible for him to find a well-paying job here to obtain citizenship legally. It was just too hard. There was too much racism, frankly. So they went to China and shortly afterward, the communists invaded and they were stuck there for the next 30, 40 years. So I kind of wondered what would have happened if my family had not gone back to China? What if they had stayed in the U.S.? And that's the family that I give to Lily. So in a way, it's me imagining what it might have been like if they had stayed in the U.S. So that's the primary point of connection between my family's experience and this book. Was the same thing true if it was a white man and an Asian and a Chinese woman? Or because because in your situation, it was a Chinese man, white and woman, white and woman. It, yeah. Was it was it this was it the same for, I don't think do it know? was the same because it was a, there was a specific law to prevent white women from marrying Asian men. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I because I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds that sounds right. <laughs> when I think about us, like when I think about the United States, that sounds that sounds right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just about. Yeah. Wild. Did you have. And those, so those were your grandparents. Did you have a close relationship with them? I did with my grandmother, uh, my white grandmother. Um, because, uh, she was a writer as well. Oh, wow. And she really inspired me to be a writer. Um, my, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, unfortunately died in China during the cultural revolution. 
um, because he was labeled as a an intellectual and he suffered quite a bit under the communists. Um, my mother's family were, I was not as close to them because they were in China and we had come to the U.S. And then once they came to the U.S., um, they didn't live in the same area as us. So I was mostly close to my paternal grandmother. And, you know, I still miss her. I think about her all the time. I miss my grandmother, too. Um, yeah. Did you, did you, did she talk to you about this experience? I know sometimes in a family when there's, when there mm-hmm. are these big moments and I have my, you know, my own big moments in my family. Sometimes they're talked about, sometimes they're not talked about, you know, like, mm-hmm. it, and it, and it's, it almost feels like it's like rarely sometimes we talked about, it. it's kind of like open or like not open. And I, I'm curious about how that was in your family. Yeah. My white grandmother did talk about it. She wrote a memoir about her time in China oh, wow. during the Cultural Revolution and it was published in 1980. And it was um, one of the first accounts about that time in Chinese history to be published in the U.S. It was kind of a big deal at the time. And uh, she went on, like, authors used to go on book tours and she went on, like, CBS Evening News and, like, wow. PBS. It was kind of a big deal. And she was kind of a, a little bit of a celebrity. Um, and But that's the only book she had published. Although she wrote other books, um, they, they weren't able to be published. So I did know about my family. It was a little weird to find out about it by reading her her memoir though right that that's a weird way to learn about your family even though <laughs> i did then learn about like, my family so right yeah. yeah yeah this is what i hear from my family about being related <laughs> to a stand-up comic uh, so find out about stuff that <laughs> sometimes it's weird to hear about your family from the stage that's what i hear um yeah wow that is so interesting what, what age were you when you would have been reading that? Um, I probably read it, well, when I, in 1980, I was six years old, so I did not read it then. I, I have always had a copy, um, and I probably read it at some point when I was growing up. Yeah. And I've read it since then, um, but it's really difficult for me to read parts of it, like, especially... The chapters where my grandfather dies, like it's real. I never knew him as a person, you know, in my life, but it's just, it's really hard for me to read those, those scenes. And so I have not read it recently. I will say that much. <laughs> wow. That may, I mean, thank you for sharing all that with me. That is, that's very um, helpful information to know about. Obviously it's also your family story. So it's like, it's, you know, very heavy and loaded. I'm not saying it's, but I do, I do think that that is something that's impactful about about last night at the Telegraph Club is that like so much. Di- I mean, it's just like a it's a beautifully written book, and I don't think it doesn't feel like it's like um you know taking the medicine of history with like a <laughs> with like a sweetness of like it's just like a good book. Um, but there's a lot of info in there too, you know, about mm-hmm. life as a as across different um identities and and for a person whose identities intersect so yeah it's it's like a really helpful read if one is looking to to learn when did you find out that you yeah. won this award uh i found out at the same time as everybody uh oh, seriously? you know yeah no they don't tell you until the award ceremony so ha- it was right. virtual this year if it was in person i would have gone to new york and there would have been a big to do like black tie event and I would have been in the audience while, you know, pretending 
and I was so happy, you know, the entire time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> fortunately, and what would it you was, be wearing to black tie event? Um, Talk well, me through I it. wanted to get a tuxedo. I really yeah. wanted to get a tuxedo, obviously. And I started looking online for tuxedos because I'm like, where am I going to get a tuxedo that can fit me? And it's it's really I'm it's really hard. I mean, you may know this. It's you very don't have hard. to tell me. It's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I didn't get a tuxedo because they changed it to virtual before I needed to get it. So yeah, in one way, I was saved from that fashion tragedy or difficult <laughs> difficulty uh, odyssey. I don't know. I would still like to get a tuxedo, but I don't really know. I don't know how to do it. I really don't know. You know, you know, yeah. I mean, here's what I would say. Here's what I've had the most success with. Um, Getting something and then having it altered. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, for instance, like Nordstrom can be a higher priced department store, but a great function that they have, a great functionality that they have is that they will alter clothes for free and they'll right. do it on site. So um, it's like the kind of thing where for somebody who is looking to make like an investment into a jacket, I think it makes a lot of sense to buy something. And they know they have like top man stuff there too. So that can be more affordable. Uh-huh. I think it makes a lot of sense to go in and then, cause alterations can be very expensive. Um, so that's that's one thing that I always say. Another thing I do is like I straight up like pay to get my clothes altered if they're not yeah. from there. And it's it is like an investment. You know, it's not like a an easy choice to make. It would be so nice to not do that. But it does feel <laughs> like it's like an investment in me, you know, so that's one thing. Another thing. And again, you know, all of this is like. The the thing it's the the like gender tax uh, that I feel like I pay, but. Another thing that's true is like there are these days more affordable um, made to measure companies, which is a great place to get suiting because they'll they'll measure you and make it specifically for you. If you're somebody who's on like a real budget, I think the top man with free alterations from Nordstrom is like a better option than a made to measure mm-hmm. suit. But it just kind of depends on how much of an investment somebody is able to make and then wants to make. Um, did you think we were going to talk? in depth about tuxedos i've got more it's so I've got funny more. it's got so more. funny because when i was working on this book i had to describe the clothes that the characters were wearing and i'm not like a fashion person and i it was like torture for me figuring out <laughs> how to dress these people in the 1950s and so i find it hilarious that now i i just talk talk about this stuff all the time now i guess i've worked through my issues with describing fashion so yeah. <laughs> I just had a really hard time in this book. Yeah. With that. How come you're talking about it all the time now? Because you're being invited to events because people are asking you, why is it? No, why is I it- think now, I think now that I've had to think about what they wore mm. so much, I, I'm just, I think about it more now and I, and like how to get stuff. And it's, it's complicated, especially during the pandemic. Like when you can go to someplace and try stuff on and then see if you can have it altered, that's great. But if you're ordering everything from the internet, it's just... Sometimes like a total crapshoot. Well, that's such a good point. I mean, I think that's why I say I think it's, you know, it's genuinely difficult when alterations are not on the table for me because I have a large chest and it turns out that suiting companies um, don't know about that. (laughs) 
actually, you know what? Not surprised. Melinda, I've got I have got a great pandemic era cheat. Here's what it is. Um, Express. Oh, really? The store, the, like, the mall store? Yeah, the like mall store. Okay. Yes. They have fairly afford they they're just it's because they're like in the um business lady uh right market or whatever like it's like <laughs> where people go to get their first suit or something like that it's like they're like in that market but a lot of their stuff fits me and it's like vaguely fashion e like they're like <laughs> you know whatever and um and i don't alter my stuff from express because it is fascinating made to be worn you know you got to look at the or i i try to look at the i try to look at all the pictures to see like how it would fit like what are we really talking uh-huh. about here because i'm not looking for like boot cut yeah pants with like a cropped blazer but there's some stuff on express that, that can work <laughs> it's it's so funny because that's the store that was so big when i was in high school 100 percent and yes. I used to have that sweatshirt that just said Express on it. Oh my god, I know and the like, one. Yeah, with the, like in the embroidered letters. I, I know it was, it was ridiculous. Also, it's a store I would run past. Besides having yeah. that sweatshirt, like I would never have. Yeah. So it just is wild. What? It's because I was trying to find suit. It's exactly what you're talking about. I was trying to find suiting without being able to go in anywhere because I had to like mm. go to some interesting. Events. Yeah. Well, I haven't had to go to any. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, but everything's you're also, been virtual you know thinking about it for your own life and how you want to present i mean i think this stuff yeah. is so interesting yeah. like i i, I don't, we don't need to talk about this forever i don't I, it's like i don't i don't need to like i'm okay with wearing women's fashion sometimes but also sometimes i'm not like i wish that the idea of what women quote unquote would wear would be more expansive you know and not so not so traditionally feminine like can we have untraditionally feminine i would like that i think <laughs> what do you think is i don't know in that, that category is. give me a category what's in there like 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 outfits that you would wear if you were like in a science fiction movie in the future amazing you know what i mean i do know what you mean and i, I gotta say i do think this is really important and stuff we should talk about be- so you know something that i have noticed well, it like it does matter what we see in fashion or in Hollywood or on red carpets or in magazines, because obviously like filters down through the culture. So I'm not saying like that people can't make their own decisions, but like it does matter what we see. I don't have to tell you that you're a former entertainment reporter. But something I've noticed over the last couple of years is that like there's a lot of cool gender bendy stuff happening um, for non-binary folks assigned male at birth and also for like straight up cis dudes like i'm thinking about like a timothy Mm. chalamet type of a person um you know like showing up and wearing you know harnesses and like skirts and you know all this (laughs) stuff um and i don't think that we've seen the equivalent from cis women or from afab non-binary folks like i feel like Mm -hmm. it's like there's there's been all this cool celebration of like can we believe how harry styles looks and i love how Mm -hmm. harry styles looks you know and also like yeah dude harry styles is like doing bowie it's fucking awesome like i love it you know um but i don't know that we have like i guess you know evan rachel wood was doing some pretty amazing stuff a couple years ago yeah she was wearing a lot of a lot of tuxes Uh, there just haven't been events in a minute but you know, or like obviously Janelle Monet is always doing amazing things, but I just mm-hmm. feel like there's been this huge movement toward like skirts, 
for men on runways, you know, and I'm I am I'm not seeing the same for me. Whatever would be the equivalent of that. I'd like it. Right. Well, there should there should be. Take note, fashion people. Well, I guess you and I will just start wearing it and then That's right. people will catch up. That's right. <laughs> Sounds good. So I'm curious, um, because you said, you know, it had taken a minute to get this recognition, you know, this award, mm-hmm. like how does it change things for you either emotionally or like in practice i mean does it does it has it made your next project more in demand has it um changed your standing you know external to yourself and then has it how has it been for the internal world well on a more mundane level i've gotten a lot more email since yay i won like way more email like way way more uh invitations to to do or things. bummer <laughs> I yeah want yeah it, it, it's great at first and then like two months in i'm like oh my god there's that's still coming <laughs> right um no it's it's amazing that people now are inviting me to go speak at places um it's it's wonderful there's a lot more interest in um my book and that's fantastic i think that from a creative standpoint it's been a little bit um tricky because I'm so glad that I won this award. And at the same time, I have not really been able to write since I won it, right? Because so much email. I've written a lot of email since I won it. (laughs) And um, otherwise, I haven't had a lot of quiet time to think about what I want to do next. Um, I'm starting to try to make time for that in my, in my schedule. <laughs> and I, cause I really need time away from the internet and away from things online and, you know, people asking me things. I need to be quiet and alone and basically follow my interests to see what I want to do next. And I think there, I do feel some pressure about what I should do next. And I'm trying to not let that color what I actually want to do, you know, <laughs> What it what does that pressure look like? Is is there like something where somebody has said the next project has to look like this? No, no. I'm very fortunate to work with um, an agent and an editor who are both very supportive of my um, creative freedom. They're both wonderful, wonderful guys, and so I often um, I'm I'm basically just. I just need some some time to think through what I really want to do because I think I know, but I I need some time to like process that idea and allow it to take shape uh, before I tell anyone. <laughs> that sounds healthy. I teach me your ways of sitting with something. <laughs> that sounds great. Sounds like a you really have to you have mature... to leave Twitter. Are you on Twitter? Um, I... you are on Twitter. Not that much though, right? Not that much right now. I have found that like. As the pandemic has continued, um, I'm just not feeling that like social media is where I want to be with my effort right now. You know, like I'm most active on Instagram, but like even that is way down from what it used to be. And like I have a lot of work stuff that I'm doing and a huge part of my job used to be maintaining a like strong social media presence. And um I'm just not sure how that was like affecting my 
I don't think that that was necessarily affecting my mental health in a positive way because I think especially mm -hmm. as a comic, I was like expected to have a sort of pithy retort for everything and it just got really exhausting or like a statement of solidarity about everything. And like, the thing is, is like, I know how I feel as a person and I know the actions that I'm taking. And I don't know that stating something on Twitter, like it just, it just started to feel very, um, like the space started to feel very like vacuous. It just started to feel like vacuous and vapid. Like it just was like, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'm not really on stuff right now. It's a conscious choice. Don't really have That's it installed good. in my phone these days. Um, it doesn't make me feel good. What about you? Yeah. Um, I don't have Twitter on my phone uh, or uh, on, I have an iPad that I write on. I don't have any social media on that. I um, So I only check Twitter when I'm at my desktop computer up in the attic. So I don't go up there unless I, you know, if I have an urge to tweet something when I'm downstairs, I, I don't. So um, yeah, I think you're already halfway there to my methodology of basically giving yourself space by not being on social media. It's so important. I think that social media can be so draining and a terrible, terrible um, deadening effect on creativity you know yeah that's how that's how I, I mean i also will say you know there was a time in my life and a time in my career when it like was really working for me and mm -hmm. i'm sure there are other people who are at that point like when i was at the point where the thing i needed to do the most was like make connections or be seen but like right now what i actually need to do the most is um make content like and not, not social media content but like write scripts or like do acting mm -hmm. work like that's what i need to be doing the most and I did find that it was a hindrance for some of that stuff. So it sounds like it sounds yeah. like that's kind of what you're describing too. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you have to be able to hear the voice in you, your voice, you know, <laughs> not not the voice of like a million people on the internet. That's the problem with social media. Ah, right. Yeah, I think that is very well said. I think that is what was happening was that I was losing my own voice. Yeah, for sure. And like the performative nature of some of the stuff that like even for me, like entering that stream, um, it's not like I've posted yeah. things I didn't agree with. It's just that like having that be the focus of my life was uh, pretty tough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, how can I get I people to like my opinions? <laughs> I mean, that, that's what it's about. That's, that's really fucking that's wild. Yeah, it's weird. Isn't it weird? And yeah. I'm a writer, so I'm not used to like, well, I'm I'm used to it now, but it's like it's not it does not correspond with the mental state you have to be in to write. It's just not at all for me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I hear you. I mean, this is also some of the I don't I don't usually watch stand up because it's like, why would I? It, it just feels like actually a membrane that like I just want to I mean, I'll watch it in person. I'll watch my friends, but I don't like sit down and watch stand up at the end of the day because like. Why would I want to see everybody else's take? Like, I feel like that's an, actually an invasive mm. species in my head. That's <laughs> like going to come out sideways. So I just mm -hmm. want to make sure it's my take. Anyway, blah, random boring shit to talk about, but truth. But how, the second part of my question, which is how, how you feel about yourself after this award, did it change things how you feel? We hadn't gotten there yet. Um, how do I feel after I got the award? Let me think about that. I think for a long time, I was just 
stunned. Like I didn't really have a lot of feelings about it. I was just like, okay, this happened. Um, I think that it's difficult for me as a daughter of Chinese immigrants, it's difficult for me to accept praise, (laughs) you know, because my parents were not uh, the type of parents to be like, we love you. We're proud of you. Like they never say that. You know, I, I think that most Chinese parents do not ever say that stuff. So I was not used to people saying things like, your book is so good. It won the National Book Award. <laughs> Yay. And I, and you know, it, that is not, is, it's really not something I'm, I, I have a lot of uh, ability to feel in my mm-hmm. body. Like I, I can sense that I have very little feeling around it. Like mm-hmm. that sounds weird, but I, I meditate every day. And I've been maintaining this meditation practice for almost 20 years now. So I'm very attuned to the way I physically feel about things. And the night of the awards and up to, to it, like the, the week before the awards, I was totally nauseous. I was queasy. I was anxious. Like, had I gone to an awards show in person, there's a dinner, I would not have been able to eat anything that night, Right. So it's a good thing I was at home because I was, I had been sick with anxiety like for a week. (laughs) So as soon as the awards thing was over, I was no longer sick. I was kind of just full of relief. That's how I felt. I was relieved that it was over. Um, As time has passed, I think I have, and especially when I spoke to the judges of the National Book Awards, we had a little Zoom get together later. And that really, brought home to me, you know, I felt really honored by them. I felt so seen and appreciated. And I really felt like not only this book, but the books that I had written before, I felt like my work in the young adult um, community, I felt like it had been seen too by these judges. And that was really incredible and gratifying because for so long, like I've been putting out books and doing my little thing on on the internet and in the book world. And, you know, it, it has often felt like my time was passing me by, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the at the beginning, when my first book was published in 2009, it was a lesbian retelling of Cinderella. Very, very few books were like it at the time. <laughs> you know, it was really one of the first of that kind of book. And people loved it a lot. But as the years went by, like, people still remembered it, but other authors came up and they would have, they would write queer books or that would, that would get much more push than mine ever did. But all these authors would say, because I read your book, Melinda, I had the courage to write mine, (laughs) you know, but it would be their books that would get the support. (laughs) Awesome. So glad to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm very touched that, that my book, you know, my books affected these writers in this way. But of course, from a business perspective, of it was a little bit like, great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so course. glad I did that so that, you know, five, six, seven years later, publishers could finally be ready right. <laughs> to promote a book like that, you know. So this year with Last Night at the Telegraph Club, I felt, I finally felt like, all right, they see me. They have, they have seen what I've done and I, I felt very um, gratified and happy to be seen because, it's just so it's just so great. It's so great that people have seen what I did and found it, you know, 
good enough to make note of in such an amazing way. Yeah, I hear you. I I mean, I relate to a lot of stuff that you're talking about. And yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say is it doesn't like totally surprise me that you just felt like stunned. And I think it's for me, it's very hard to take in. And I'm like so goal oriented that it's actually hard for me to take in any like wins or Mm. it's to me. I'm like, that's beside the point. Like, let's get on to the next to do task, you know, like yeah. it just feels yeah. like um, it's hard for me to metabolize it. I, it's something I'm always having to work on. But maybe that's good because if you think about it, like what if you win the award and then for the next like whatever months of your life, you're just like an insufferable, like <laughs> I won this award. Like we don't really want that, right? <laughs> Agreed. I think it's also equally insufferable to never experience any wins. Like I think yes, both are, yes. you know, so that's why I work on it because it's like, the, you know, I think I can sometimes get a little unmoved by success, it w- whatever success means, but like by forward movement. And that's, I think I, I think it's for me, it's just about like. It's a way of preventing disappointment because you even, you, you, you got the win, but you're like, well, that's great. But, you know, something, the shit's going to hit the fan soon. Totally. So I'm just going to prepare myself for the next bad thing. Like, totally. I feel like that's how I had been feeling in my publishing career, you know? So it would be nice to get like a little blip of something every once in a while, but I'd be like, all right, that's fine. But let's remember, everything could go to hell tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> not not that publishing is a terrible, necessarily terrible, but it's a hard business. I mean, writing things and hoping people like them enough to buy them is kind of a weird thing to do for money. <laughs> like it's, it's not really very, um, it's not stable and it's not guaranteed. So I feel like I had built right. up this this way of just like being prepared for the worst. <laughs> right. That's I mean, that's super interesting. Well, also, I mean, this is just my I don't know if this is how it works anymore. This is just because I live with an editor when you're working in fiction, especially like as opposed to memoir or something like that. When it's, when it's fiction, you have to have like the whole thing done before you sell it. Right. Like that's the normative no. thing. Oh, She's a hotshot, so that's not true for her. No, you, mostly you do, but I, I've had the, it's a blessing and a curse that my last few books have, I have not had to, I've not had to write them until oh, they have been excuse. sold. That's amazing. So it's been. Is that uh, good or bad? It's both. It's good because yeah. you get some money, but right. it's bad because then you got to write it. Right. Um, and <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's both. I think I I understand the the appeal of having of of having it. I understand the appeal of both. Like there, like if you can write something fully and have it done and then go on submission, that can be good. But then you can have everyone reject it. <laughs> That's why I was asking. Actually, it's because that yeah. the, the work up top to like not have it pan out, which is kind of a different. I mean that that exists. In every, you know, in every form of media, but I think to write a book just takes like such a long takes well amount of time <laughs> that yeah. it's like a lot. It's the it's a disproportionate like risk or whatever compared to some. If only stuff. it took less time, like that that would be great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my the last book I went on submission with that where I had written it before I went on submission was back in 2014, and it was rejected by everyone mm. in New York. And they rejected, many of the rejections were just not, I didn't get any feedback, but the several of them were like, well, there's too much sex in it. And it's because it was, and it was lesbian sex and they were not comfortable with this. It was very clear that 
a lot of these editors were not comfortable with that. Wow. And so that process of submission and rejection was not at all fun. I mean, it was really bad for me psychologically. And um, was that also a YA book? Yeah, it's a YA book. And fortunately, um, my editor that I'm working with now, he um, he wanted to buy it later. So um, it's coming out this fall. Oh, my God. What's it called? I want to read this book. (laughs) (laughs) It's called A Scatter of Light. And it is um, they're they're pitching it. Well, the publisher is positioning it as a companion to Last Night of the Telegraph Club because it, it there are uh some cr- crossover characters in it what it it is set 60 years later it's set <gasps> in 2013 so you're creating just, like a whole marvel universe of yeah of Mar- yeah the melinda Lowe marvel universe everybody's a lesbian <laughs> so. sounds great <laughs> yeah so this fall it is coming out this fall and the sex that was rejected <laughs> in 2014 is still in it it's almost exactly the same that sounds so. great can I please yeah. get an advanced copy as soon as possible? I'm, <laughs> I'll put I you to, on the list. I have yes. to fly to Vancouver next week. So if we could get it for that flight, that'd be amazing. Um, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited, but also totally scared. <laughs> so we'll see what happens with it. Totally scared, why? Well, it's very different from Last Night at the Telegraph Club. Like, it's not a love story. Um, don't expect a love story. <laughs> I don't care about it, love. It's obvious. <laughs> It's uh, some people do, though, you know, some people care about love. Yeah, some people care about that. So it's just a very different book. And I hope that people like it. I'll deal with it if they don't, I guess. See, look, I'm doing the whole getting ready for it to be bad. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Oh, this was such an awesome conversation. And I, um, well, first of all, I really got to recommend to listeners that that they read last night at the telegraph club and um i also listened to it um because that is one of the top ways that i consume books and it's a great audiobook it's really really beautifully read and i would really recommend it as an audiobook also and before i send you back into your day i just want to ask if you would shout out a queero which is like a person place or thing that made you feel you could be who you are today yeah, so I wanted I have listened to your podcast, so I was thinking Excuse. what would I name here? And <laughs> um I I decided that uh I'm gonna talk say two things. So the first book that I read that really made me realize I could write books with lesbians in them was Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters. God, this is and such a good book. <laughs> it's it's I I've said this a lot, but it was literally the book that made me think, oh my god, I could do this. So awesome. Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters. So um, definitely that. I also want to say, give a shout out to um, the many lesbian bars of San Francisco in the early 2000s, where I felt so welcome. You know, I they they are in this book, too. They're in Telegraph Club as well. And I found my friends there, you know, it was so much fun. So where did I go? I went, I did a lot at In Bed with Fairy Butch. In case anybody around here remembers, mm-hmm. In Bed with Fairy Butch, it was one of my favorites. Went to the Cat Club. Obviously went to the Lexington, which is sadly closed. Um, and there were, you know, weekly clubs, but, oh, El Rio. That was also great. So shout out to all these bars in San Francisco because they really were a sense of community for me at the time. Oh, I love that. I love that. And um, 
I'm so glad to hear about them and so glad to hear about tipping the velvet. Just the other day, I was telling somebody, I don't remember why, but I was telling them that there was a really good BBC series they should watch called Fingersmith, and they laughed at me. I said, It is good. I know that it has a funny name, but it is an excellent series. Yes, agreed. All right, Melinda, you rule. Thanks so much for taking the time. Congrats. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. I'm glad people get to hear us talk about fashion. Me too. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) 